chapter 1, living in the context of war is an awful prospector. The people of God are and should be a peace-loving people. See, Romans chapter 12, verse 18 teaches us, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. There's not a bad motto for you this afternoon in the office, is it? As far as it is possible, as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. But unfortunately, war in this fallen world is just the way of the world and is an awful necessity which can't actually be avoided. Every beauty pageant in this world is full of people who want world peace, but it hasn't created it by saying we want it. Every government works for it, but it hasn't created it by saying we're working towards it. And sometimes war actually reflects the mind of God in his judgment of the world. For while anger and jealousy are usually negative emotions and responses and reflect our basic nature of flesh, our sinful nature as some would translate it, anger and jealousy are not always wrong. Sometimes anger is good. And while the anger of man doesn't bring about the righteous life that God desires, according to James 1, yet anger and jealousy can be good, can actually be an expression of love. For if you love, you will be concerned for the welfare of the object of your love, of the person whom you love. When you hear of a man or a woman happily accepting that their spouse is having an affair, you know that love has left that couple well and truly behind a long time before the affair. For the opposite of love, hate, is not anger. It's indifference. If you're angry, it's because you still care. If you're indifferent, if you don't care, it's because... You don't love. Indifference is the real problem that people have towards God. For our society doesn't hate God, unless you're Mr Dawkins and a few of those extreme people. It's basically indifferent to God. Doesn't care. If I love you, I will be angry when you are abused and I will be jealous of our relationship. So it is with God, the God who loves. He is therefore sometimes angry and sometimes jealous. And it's an important part of the prophecy of Nahum, this small chapter, small book at the, towards the end of the Old Testament upon which you don't hear all that many sermons and Bible studies, do you? But here we are today and next week going through these chapters together. So let's get a little bit of a background to Nahum. As we saw over the last couple of weeks where we've been dealing with Jonah, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. It was a great city, a walled city of 12,000 people in Jonah's day, a wall that went for 12 kilometres around the city with dams and canals. One of the canals ran 45 kilometres long. Their god, Ishtar, was the goddess of war. Their lion, the lion was their symbol, and conquest was their reputation. 
in the 8th century BC, after Jonah's time, for Nahum comes in the 100 years after Jonah's time, in the 8th century BC, they stretched their power from the Tigris-Euphrates Valley all the way across the Middle East down into Egypt. In 705 to 681, Sennacherib ruled and came and conquered Judah and Israel, rather, and nearly conquered Judah. But then in the 7th century, 669 to 627 BC, Asher I don't know how to pronounce his name, and I don't know why his mother would give him such a name, but Asher Banapal stretched the empire into being the superpower of its day. One of the great conquests that he undertook was Thebes, the capital city of Egypt. It too was a magnificent city with its vast empires and temples and palaces and the wealth of Africa and Asia came to Thebes. But in 663 BC, the Assyrians under Ashurbanipal laid siege to Thebes and conquered it. Here is, a, here is his proud boast of his conquests. He wrote and said, I myself conquered this town completely. From Thebes I carried away booty, heavy and beyond counting, silver, gold, precious stones, his entire personal possessions, linen garments with multicoloured trimmings, fine horses, inhabitants, male and female. I pulled two high obelisks, casting a cast of shining bronze, the weight of which was 2,500 talents, standing at the door of the temple, out of their bases and took them to Assyria. I carried off from Thebes heavy booty beyond counting. I made Egypt and Nubia feel my weapons bitterly and celebrated my triumphs. With full hands and safely, I returned to Nineveh, the city of my rule. In all this world empire, Israel, with its capital city of Samaria, was but a small bit player, a minor power in the Assyrian Empire. Remember, after 1000 BC, when David and Solomon ruled, Israel split in two. The northern kingdom of ten tribes surrounded Samaria and was retained the name Israel. The southern two tribes around Jerusalem took the name Judah. It's just one of the tricks for Old Testament Bible readers who don't know much yet that the word Israel sometimes refers to the whole nation and sometimes it refers to the northern nation which was only five-sixths of the whole nation. It depends which period of history you're in. In the ninth century BC, 841, the northern kingdom of Israel was in conflict with the Assyrians. Ahab fought against them. Jehu gave them tribute according to the Assyrians, as did the other kings according to the Assyrians. Though times change. When Jeroboam II was in rule, Assyria was weakened, and so they didn't exact all the tribute that they had exacted previously. But when you come down to the 8th century, 700s, Assyria grew in power again and came into, into uh, Israel and conquered Israel, destroyed the ten northern tribes, that northern kingdom, and destroyed the city of Samaria in 722 BC. But Judah 
escaped. Judah, with its capital in Jerusalem, was spared that Assyrian conquest. Though the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, came down again and besieged the city of Jerusalem in 705 BC. And the great siege of Jerusalem in 705 BC was like the, the Spanish Armada in, in, in Britain in the 16th century, or like the Battle of Trafalgar in 805 for, 1805 for the British. It was the turning point of history. For the whole mighty empire of Assyria came and bottled up King Hezekiah in Jerusalem. And after a couple of years, they went home and left Jerusalem intact. Later on, Sennacherib writes up how he bottled up Hezekiah in Jerusalem, but he never mentions conquering it because he didn't. But throughout the 7th century, Assyria was this dominant world power and the conquest of Thebes in 663 showed how powerful this empire had become for from one end of the ancient world to the other, they could rule and defeat a city. But Judah, though it was a vassal state through this period of time and paid tribute, still remained unconquered. Not until the next century, when Assyria and Nineveh had itself fallen to the Babylonians, would Jerusalem be conquered, not by the Assyrians, but by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. Now, with that background in mind, we turn back to Nahum. And Nahum is talking to them in the 8th, 7th century. And we see here the character of God. God's character was revealed to Moses in Exodus 33 and 34. Moses asked God to show him his glory and God showed him his goodness. For that is the glory of God, his character of goodness. And he proclaimed his name, the meaning of his name in a sense, the character of his name, Yahweh, spelt the Lord with capital L, O, R and D in the Old Testament of our Bibles. And so to Moses, God declared the Lord, Yahweh, passed before him and declared Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Here is God, the character of God, the merciful, kind, loving, faithful God who is just and retributive and punishes. You need to understand the character of God to understand the character of his world. You need to understand the character of God to understand what the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary. It is the God of Israel, the God who revealed his character to Moses, Yahweh the Lord, who writes off his wrath towards his enemies here in Nahum, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Here is the God, the jealous God, the avenging God, the wrathful God. It's not the image that most people have of God. 
They imagine that he's loving and kind like a kind of ineffectual old grandfather figure who will fall asleep and not notice your naughtiness. And he is loving and merciful. But God's love and mercy is robust. It's a real love, a love which carries with it jealousy and vengeance. Notice how in verse 3, he is slow to anger. He's not temperamental. He's not impulsive in his anger, nor is his anger uncontrolled anger. He doesn't lose his temper. It's with the guilty that he's angry. And he gives them opportunity to repent because he's slow to anger before his wrath comes in punishment of the guilty. And so he is just in his vengeance, for his justice is retributive, giving people what they deserve. Those who deserve punishment receive punishment. He will notice here in no way clear the guilty, which is what he said to Moses all those years ago. We who try to run our society today without justice by harm minimization and social engineering are in great danger of losing the fundamentals of giving people what they deserve. We should punish because it is deserved, not because it's good for you and not because it will improve society. The other day I looked up the Corrective Services Department of New South Wales and their website and I found this statement of their purpose. Our statement of purpose, Corrective Services New South Wales delivers professional correctional service to reduce reoffending and enhance community safety. Joseph Stalin would be proud of that sentence. That's brilliant. That's just the kind of stuff by which you can send people to salt mines forever. While they, of course, seek, or we in New South Wales, seek to do it justly and equitably, when you look in their website at their sense of justice and equity, it has nothing to do with punishing wrongdoers. It's all got to do with being kind. God is a God of justice. But there's more to him than that. And so Nahum reminds us that he's also the ruler of creation in verses 3 to 5. His way is in a whirlwind and a storm and clouds of the dust of his feet. Verse 4, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt and the earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Bashan and Carmel were rich pasture lands. Uh, Lebanon was Israel's northerly kingdom, which is also a wealthy area. When God is angry, there is no end to the destruction that he can apply. There is no force that can withstand his power and there is no foe who will be able to stand against him. Verse 6, who can stand before the indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. And that is, his anger is not limited to Israel... The bloom of Lebanon withers along with the, the uh, countryside of Carmel and Bashan. Yet this is only one aspect of his character. It's not the totality. For towards his friends, those who trust in him and take their refuge in him, they know his goodness. They know his shelter. They know his care. 
for the Lord, verse 7, is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. He is a refuge, he is a help, a protector who knows his own for the Lord is good. And knowing God's character of justice and goodness helps us understand then his actions in history, the actions of God in verses 8 to 15 of this chapter. For God was not theoretically angry and powerful and good. He was in fact angry and powerful and good. And this fact was demonstrated in his actions in the world and in the amongst the nations. So Nahum, we see in verse 1 of this chapter, has a great vision of Nineveh, of what God was about to do to that city. For God was about to act towards Nineveh in a terrifying judgment that would bring an end to Nineveh's terror over the world. Verse 8, But with an overflowing flood he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What? Do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time for... They are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink, they are consumed like stubble, fully dried. A destruction is coming. A total devastation is coming. Never again will this nation rise up to terrify the world with its insatiable conquest. They have been so stupid as to plot against the Lord. Look at verse 11 there. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord. A worthless counsellor. Thus says the Lord, though they are full of strength and many, they'll be cut down and pass away. Don't pick a fight with somebody you cannot beat. That's daft. That's stupid. But that's what they've done in attacking God's people, in attacking God. For from within Nineveh they have been led to plot against Yahweh. And that will be their undoing. That will be their destruction. So even though they are powerful and numerous, they're about to be cut down to size and pass out of the history of humanity. Big empires are like that, friends, aren't they? In the 30s and 40s, who would have imagined how short the Nazi regime would be? In the 50s and 60s, who would have imagined the collapse of the Russian Empire, the USSR? Big and mighty empires can collapse overnight. Why? Wall Street might collapse tomorrow or today, or it might be collapsing right now and you should have been in the office. No, you shouldn't. If it's collapsed, there's no point being in the office. You may as well be here, actually. Uh, We should move to prayer. It only takes a little bit and mighty world empires can come down very, very quickly. But notice the final reason for Nineveh's fall. They are vile idolaters. Verse 14, the Lord has given command, verse 14 is over the page there, the Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image and I will make your grave for you are vile. 
Why do you know the name Sennacherib? Why, if you've ever heard of it, would you know the name Tiglath Pileser? Why would you know the name uh, Asher Banapal? Only because they're in the Bible. <laughs> Nineveh's disappeared. Assyria's disappeared. It's just another one of those empires whose kings have come and kings have gone and frankly nobody cares today, nobody knows about it. And if you're outside the biblical community, unless you're an expert in ancient Near Eastern studies, you've never even heard of these men who in their day were Napoleon and Stalin and Adolf Hitler. Everybody knew them and quaked in fear at the very name. But today, they're not even footnotes in the history books of most people. Don't pick a fight with God. To us, idolatry, though, seems a very strange thing to see such strong reaction from God. I mean, idolatry is a minor sin, if a sin at all. We are a community that's very tolerant about other people's religions and quite fascinated, if not appreciative, of their religious artwork. There's many a person who has in their lounge room a little statue of this God or that God that they've picked up in their travels of the world, but not so God. He hates the lies of false gods that so dominate and destroy the lives of societies and humans that he has created in his image. And he hates the distortion and caricature of himself as a speechless, powerless, immobile, dumb god, an artefact of human imagination that must be carried around and washed and dusted and cleaned and protected from the birds dropping on them and the dogs doing unmentionables to them. God is not like a statue in any shape, form or fashion. The statue is a total misrepresentation of God. He is the almighty creator whose loving kindness makes him passionately concerned for the justice of the world. And his love can be seen in his actions towards Judah. For in the midst of the destruction of the Assyrian Empire and the overthrow of Nineveh, he speaks to Judah and gives comforting words of reassurance about being freed from the evil empire of Assyria. And so look at the second half of verse 12, just back over that page at 945. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more, says God towards Judah, verse 13, and now I will break his, the Assyrian, yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of God's, I will cut off you, then speaking to the Assyrians, the carved image, etc. Verse 15, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Little Judah is caught up in the great Assyrian Empire. And little Judah will be, in a sense, caught up in the destruction of the Assyrian Empire. But yet, God addresses Judah as well. And Judah is to be relieved from the great destruction of the Assyrian Empire as he is relieved from the Assyrian Empire at the same time. 
in the midst of pulling down America or China or Russia, a little nation like Australia gets pulled down at the same time. But not if it was God's nation. For Judah compared to Assyria is like Australia compared to China. It's just a tiny little nothing, a place you can dig minerals out, but of no consequence. But not if it's in the eye of God. Little Judah is to be cared for and protected by the God who loves him. It reminds me of 2 Peter chapter 2 where we read, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. For in the midst of Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction, Lot and his family were saved. In the midst of the great flood in Noah's time, Noah and his family were saved. In the midst of the world collapse of the Assyrian Empire, Judah was saved. So let's turn our attention for a moment to how Nahum 1 contributes to our Christian understanding of the world, to the Christian worldview. I'll do it under three headings. God, justice and love. For this chapter helps us in all those three issues. I'm going to give you four points under each, actually. Firstly, uh, just by random chance it came to four under each. I didn't work it out and they're not all alliterative. Four under each. First one, under God. From Nahum 1 we see that God is the creator, the ruler of all things. Secondly, that he holds all nations accountable. Even, especially, the nations who ignore him. There's no point saying, oh well look we're a Muslim country so we're not answerable to the God of the Bible. Or we're a secularist nation, we don't have to answer to the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible has made us. He's created everything and created everybody. And whether you acknowledge God or don't acknowledge God, he's the one to whom you ultimately have to answer. Thirdly, he loves and is so justly angry. Not just in theory, but also in action. That is, God is not a universal pacifist, a unilateral pacifist. He's not just going to have peace everywhere. God's peace comes with justice because he loves his world and his people and he hates what people do to each other and what they do to his world. He hates it because he loves them. He's not indifferent to us. He hasn't fallen asleep, totally uncaring about our welfare. No, he loves. And so fourthly, he loves and so is mercifully protective. Because God is the God of this great love, he is really protective of his friends, his people who take refuge in him. But he is really angry with those who would attack them, with those who would defile him and his name and his people, with those who are acting unjustly and in enmity towards him. The fact they don't care about him is an irrelevance and he deals with us as nations. Our nation, which does and doesn't acknowledge God, will be held to account by God in this world for the ways in which we act. And we as citizens of this nation have an opportunity to express our view, thankfully, democratically, 
in the kind of government we want and the kinds of decisions that the government is going to make. And God will hold us to account as a nation just as he's called all nations to account. And therefore, in this lifetime, holds us to account because he cares about people. He cares about his world. He loves and therefore is angry. So the second point is four points about justice. Firstly, God's justice is retributive, not utilitarian. Retributive justice is giving people what they deserve for what they have done in the past. Utilitarian justice is giving people what you think will make things better for them. Those two forms of justice are completely different. The God of the Bible is the God of retributive justice. And frankly, so should we be. For utilitarian justice is not just. It's social engineering, it's manipulation, it's political spin. You see, secondly, wrong should be punished. If we've done wrong, we should take the consequences of doing wrong. Rather than wrongdoing, endlessly being rewarded, being ignored, or somehow being corrected. They're not correcting the wrong we've done, they're correcting the wrong they think we might do again. That, of course, means they're doing things to us for things we haven't done, we don't deserve. I mean, Brian there, he looks like he needs correcting in lots of things. I work with him, I can assure you, he needs correcting. Given his past record, I think a lobotomy would help Brian considerably. It would actually improve the way he behaves towards the rest of us. That is utilitarian. Injustice. Wrong should be punished. Thirdly, just Anger is fueled by love. You can't have a God who loves without him being angry. And because he's just, it will be just anger. And fourthly, loving anger is controlled by justice. You see, we can be angry unjustly, can't we? But not God. His loving anger is controlled by justice. He can't be loving and unjust. He can't be loving and indifferent. This is all important, you see, if we're going to understand the cross. For in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see the love of God and the justice of God. We see the mercy of God and the punishment of God. Without justice, without the guilty deserving punishment, the cross of Jesus does not make any sense. Utilitarian justice can't understand the gospel. The Old Testament is there to give us the concepts of mind to understand what God is doing in his world. For thirdly, there are four points about love. One, God is loving and good. Secondly, loving goodness necessitates justice. Thirdly, Loving enables compassionate mercy. And fourthly, this love is illustrated in both the history of Judah at the time of Nahum and in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the good news, Nahum 1.15, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who published peace. It's as Peter says, 
of Jesus when he preached the gospel to the first non-Jew, Cornelius, who got converted, where he speaks this word that was sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. And he told the Cornelius, the non-Jew, Jesus Christ, who is Lord of not just Israel, not just the Jews, he is the Lord of all. God is the God of all peoples, for he's the creator. And his message and repentance and forgiveness is for all peoples. He sent Jonah and brought Nineveh into repentance. Now he sends Nahum and Nineveh will not repent. He loves all and so will judge with anger his enemies and will save with mercy his friends. So it's you, enemy or friend. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for every good gift you give to us, but above all that wonderful gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby we see your justice in full and we find your mercy complete. Thank you for him, Father. Thank you for Nahum bringing your message that we might understand our Lord Jesus, that we might understand how you who are so angry with humanity's sinfulness can be so merciful and forgiving towards us. And we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.